0: The book of Galatians, the book of Galatians. We are starting this series in Galatians. We finished our introduction and we will uh, be looking at uh, chapter one, verses one through five today. I want to take my time through these verses, uh, but I don't want to take too long. But it's important that we look at these verses because I think in these verses, Paul is laying uh, his foundational theology or thoughts uh, for the rest of the book. Uh, many of, y- of us have, uh, have been to Bible study or have, or have heard in, in the introduction um, that uh, I believe that Galatians is Paul's first book that he wrote. Okay. So um, this is fa- Paul's first attempt at explaining his understanding of the gospel. Um, Paul is very technical in what he writes uh, here. But um, in this book, I want us to make sure that we work our way through it and understand it. Um, and with that, we must understand uh, Paul's central thoughts uh, in these first few verses. Right. So with read with me, starting at verse one. It reads, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. But through Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would sanctify us through your word because your word is truth. I pray, Lord, as we begin this series in Galatians, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds. Help us to uh, allow your spirit to transform and shape our understanding of the gospel. Help us to see um, all the things that Paul is explaining here, whether he's referring to circumcision or the law um, or the covenants or whatever he refers to help us to to be able to wrestle with these things and to understand what paul is trying to teach us about you about the law about our ability and about your grace i pray that as we uh, work our way through this book that you would help us to understand the gospel a little bit better so that we can look to the one who gave himself for us. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, Janita and I went to Ripley's Believe It or Not in Tennessee. In one of the exhibits, there was a long tube with a catwalk. The walls spun around and the catwalk also moved. It was impossible to walk through the tube upright because the interaction between the moving walls and the moving floors disoriented your mind. Walking became impossible because we were not seeing reality correctly. We could have become seriously injured if it were not for the handrails there to guide us through the room. Our experience at Ripley's that day is similar to what we as human beings experience every day. We have a perspective or viewpoint of the world, ourselves, our circumstances, and even God. We often think that our perspective is reality, only to later find ourselves stumbling through life disoriented and groping for the handrails. The greatest example of this truth is found in the subject of salvation, or how we can be rightly related to God. It has been said that every human being is a theologian. We all theologize or have an opinion about God, ourselves, and the world. And when it comes to how we as humans relate to God, we often find ourselves disoriented and stumbling through life because we have an improper perspective on God and ourselves. Everything hinges on having the correct perspective and interpretation of reality. Now, what I want us to see in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 today, is Paul is establishing reality. He is establishing both the divine reality and also human reality. And this reality centers around our human need and God's divine mission. I think it would be safe to say that most people, when it comes to the topic of salvation, are um, have a what we would call an anthropocentric perspective. Right. They see us, anthropos, man, mankind, um, as the center of all reality. We think that the world is about us. We think that life is about us. And even as Christians, we think that the Bible is about us. And we also think that salvation is about us. But it's not. We either don't see ourselves as fallen at all, or we see ourselves as ones who make mistakes, but who are generally good. The result is that we see ourselves as somehow capable of cooperating with God or in some sense of being able to offer something beneficial to our own salvation and relationship with God. But this is not the reality that Paul establishes. Paul does not present human beings as ones capable of helping themselves when it comes to salvation. He presents human beings as ones in need of rescue. I want you to look down again at verse 3. Paul does not present us as being able to help ourselves or do anything in our relationship with God. Paul presents us as in need of rescue. He says, grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver, the word means to deliver or to rescue, that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, just to say it shortly, salvation is not a partnership between us and God. Sometimes we think that salvation is is God doing a part, which is dying on the cross for our sins and we doing a part, understanding the gospel and taking the steps to that's necessary in order to, 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 to build that relationship. But salvation is not a divine and human partnership. Salvation is one thing and one thing alone. It is a divine rescue mission. Rather than seeing salvation as a partnership between God and good people who sometimes make mistakes or who sometimes do bad things, salvation should be seen as God's rescue mission of humanity, who is utterly and completely broken and incapable of doing anything to solve its greatest dilemma, the wrath of God. Now, Janita and I like to um, watch storms. Okay, so Janita likes to watch storms and. Um, I just happen to be present. I'm just <laughs> all right. So we, we 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 watched storms and um probably the b- the most memorable one is gonna be Hurricane Katrina, um, but also the tsunami uh in Indonesia in two thousand four uh when three hundred thousand people were swept away and killed. When we watch the news coverage of these storms, right, you know, it, it's, it's, it's possible to do two things. Number one, it's possible to, to, to watch the storms and be in awe of the power and greatness of God. And at the same time, it's possible to sit and grieve and pray for people who are helpless to do nothing in the face of such power. The problem with our viewpoint of ourselves is we often think that we are capable of doing something in our relationship with God. But the truth is that we need to learn how to see ourselves as the ones being swept away in the sea. That's the best image to liken salvation to. We are not just flawed, but capable of doing good things. We are the ones who are clinging to logs being swept down the river and in danger of drowning in a sea of God's wrath. And when you're drowning... Your good deeds don't count for anything. See, we have not yet, as a as mankind, accepted what God has said about us. He says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. He says we are slaves to sin. And we think that we just make a few mistakes every now and then, but that's not the picture that God gives of us. And because we think that we're just flawed, we make mistakes every now and then, we are under the mistaken impression that any time we choose, we could just start doing enough good things in order to get back into God's good graces. But if you see yourself as someone who is drowning, being pulled by an undercurrent, and you know you cannot swim, you cannot do anything good to save yourself, all you can do is cry for help and wait for someone else to come and rescue you. That is salvation. Mankind is clinging to logs while being swept downriver by the current and in danger of drowning in the sea of God's wrath. We don't need good deeds. We need divine help. And Jesus, being the divine rescue worker, is the one who has jumped from the helicopter into God's wrath and has tied a rope around us in order to pull us to safety. Now, like all analogies, um, they in some way fall short. Right? Because I, I watch these rescue workers and, and they, they jump out of the helicopter, and oftentimes they have a basket, they put the person in the basket, and then they get back in the basket too. Okay? And then they are all both are pulled to safety. But that's not what Jesus did. See, somebody had to drown. God's wrath had to be satisfied so when Jesus jumped out the helicopter and ties the rope around us and we are lifted to safety he's the one who clings to to the log until he drowns on our behalf that's what Jesus did on the cross he became our substitute so that we would not be the ones who had to be nailed on the cross As Paul says in verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. To me, this is the heart of what Paul is trying to get us to see. Jesus voluntarily jumped into the sea of God's wrath. Jesus voluntarily drowned on our behalf so that we can be saved. And this... Is the thinking that Paul brings forward as he writes the book of Galatians. This is the heart and soul of which Paul is trying to say. When he says grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to quote Paul from Titus, he's saying not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Jesus voluntarily died as our substitute, not because he knew that you would be able to do good works to please him, because you can't. Jesus died as our substitute only out of sheer grace and mercy and pity. Now, it's important that we keep this in mind as we work our way through the book of Galatians, because Paul is trying to attack our need to do something in order to please God. The Judaizers are telling the Gentiles, if you want to be saved, you have to trust in Christ, but you must also be circumcised. You must also follow the law. You must also keep these feasts, these dietary um, rules. And Paul is going to follow up on this theme, this idea of our human inability to show that your good deeds mean nothing. or as he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, in addition to establishing this divine reality, Paul fills us in on the divine purpose. Paul not only tells us that Jesus voluntarily sacrificed himself or gave himself for our sins, he tells us exactly why Jesus did it. Now, the New Testament gives us several reasons why Jesus gave himself for our sins. But specifically here in the book of Galatians, Paul goes on to say that he gave himself for our sins that, verse 4, he might deliver us from this present evil (coughs) age. Now, Jesus and the New Testament writers, they all adopted um, a Jewish apocalyptic um, um, worldview. In Jewish apocalyptic uh, worldview, uh, they believed that the world was divided into two ages. There was the present evil age that we lived in, and there is going to be a future age that is characterized by the rule and kingdom of god and they believed that one day there was going to be a cataclysmic um, event that was going to bring an end to the present evil age and that was going to bring about god's kingdom and rule on earth paul and jesus and the other new testament writers they adopted this same perspective but paul Uh, not only adopted this, but he modified this viewpoint slightly. (coughs) Now, and I think that this is behind the book of Galatians, and it's something that we have to make sure we keep um, in our thinking as we work our way through the book of Galatians. Now, Paul believed that the world is divided into these two ages. There's, There's the present evil age characterized by sin, right, evil, and death, and then there is going to be a future age where the kingdom of God is present and God will rule over everything. The the cataclysmic event for Paul is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, for Paul, becomes the central figure in all of human history. The cross of Jesus becomes the central event in all of history. Everything for Paul revolves around Jesus. Paul picks up on Jesus' teaching of this. I want you to turn really quickly to John chapter 17. For Paul, everything centers around Jesus. His modification, though, is not that this present evil age will, will come to an end and then the future age will start. Paul sees now, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the present evil age and the future age are running parallel to one another right now. John chapter 17, is everyone there? We all should be familiar with this passage of Scripture. Jesus is teaching his disciples on the night before he's crucified. Listen to what he says in... Chapter 17, starting at verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep, them, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them I have lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says here that he is praying for his disciples, He's not asking the father to take his disciples out of the world. He's saying that I'm going to leave them in the world, but I want you to keep them while they're in the world because they are not of the world. So as Christians, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. So Jesus, Paul, the New Testament writers, they had this understanding that God was not going to take us out of this present evil age, but what he would do is allow us to experience the future age right now in the midst of this present evil age. And then one day, all right, if we skip to the end of the book, (laughs) then one day he will come and uh, completely deliver us. But this is Paul's understanding. Jesus gave himself, he died on the cross for our sins so that he could give us the ability now to live the life of the future age while still in this world. And we're going to see how this plays out through the rest of Galatians as we work our way through it. Two things I want us to do before I close, and then I'm going to be done. I want us to see, number one, what are the characteristics of this present evil age? And number two, what does it mean to be delivered from this present evil age? So, number one, characteristics of this present evil age. Number one, Satan is the god of this world. I get this question a lot. Why is there so much sin and pain and evil in the world? Well, look at the one who's in charge of it. <laughs> right? Satan is the god of this world. And he has created a world that is in his own image. Number two, characteristics of the present evil age. We are dead in sin and therefore we are sin's slave. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You should probably be able to quote this. Ephesians 2. We are dead in sin, and therefore we are sli- sin's slave. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So what does it mean to be a part of this present evil age? It means that you are dead in sin, right? Which means... You are a slave to sin. People who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they cannot not sin. They have to sin because they are slaves and they must obey their master. Paul says you were a slave to sin. And you follow your master, who is the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And because you were following your master, you fulfilled the desires of your flesh and of your mind. And you were under God's wrath, just like everybody else. That's what it means to be a part of this present evil age. Number three. We all know Romans 6.23. To be a part of this present evil age means that you will receive the wages of sin, which is what? Death. <laughs> you will receive the wages of sin. You work for it and you will get your paycheck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number four. It simply means that we are doomed to suffering, pain, frustration, exploitation and all other sorts of evil in this life. You will not be immune to all of the suffering and pain in this world. But Paul says that God, through Jesus, has delivered us from this present evil age. Now, you would think, um, if you watch Christian television, that Jesus delivering us from this present evil age means that you will not be sick. You will have the best house best car you will not experience any pain or suffering uh, and if you do it's because you don't have enough faith <laughs> and if you want to be exempt from all of that just increase your faith uh which translates into um give me something <laughs> okay um but that's not what the bible teaches four things i want us to look at that will lead us back into the book of galatians number 1 i want you to turn to colossians chapter 1 When Paul says that we have been delivered from this present evil age, he is saying that we are now a part of and have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Is that one in Colossians chapter 1? Listen to what he says at verse 9. He says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy in the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. It doesn't say that you are qualified. It says, he has qualified us he makes you worthy he has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light he has delivered us from the ki- from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins the first thing um, Paul tells us about being delivered from this present evil age. He says that that God, even though you don't qualify, (laughs) he qualifies you and then he transfers you. He takes you from the power of darkness and he puts you in his son's kingdom. And after he qualifies you and takes you from the power of darkness and puts you in his son's kingdom, he gives you an inheritance in that kingdom. So you have a part and an inheritance in the kingdom of God's son. Number two, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to your left, to your left. I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean to be delivered from this present evil age? It means to be a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, just one verse. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a new creation. You may remember the old things you have done. (laughs) You may be ashamed of the old things you have done. You may be embarrassed by the old things that you have done. You may not feel new. But you are a new creation. You're new. You have died with Christ. And you have been risen with Christ. You are completely new. You are now a part of the new age. The kingdom to come. Number three. (coughs) Again, back to Romans 6.23. We all know this verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the third thing is that eternal life is your gift. Now, I want to spend most of the the time dealing with this in Romans chapter 6. I want you to turn again to the left, to the left. I had to throw it in there. I had to throw it in there. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter (coughs) 6. And this will lead us back into the book of Galatians. Remember, I said that in Galatians and Romans, Paul is pretty much dealing with the the same themes, the same topics, right? Um, Romans is just an expanded explanation of of Paul's understanding of the gospel, right? Whereas uh, Galatians is, is a short polemic. Right. He's arguing with people about something. He need to address something real quick. And then after he cools down, he gets a chance to write about it in more detail Okay, in <laughs> Romans. <laughs> Romans chapter six. Listen, I'm going to start reading in Romans chapter six. OK. So that we can get to the end of Romans chapter six and we'll easily see. How this rolls us back into what we'll talk about in the book of Galatians. We know from Romans chapter five that Paul is addressing God's grace on us, right? He he ends in a chapter five by saying where sin abounds, grace superabounds, right? It, it much more abounds, uh, and <coughs> just like good uh human beings, we get to thinking, okay, well, if I sin and God gives me more grace, well if I if I keep on sinning, that means God's gonna give me even more grace. Okay. And so Paul was probably finished the book of Romans and then he was like, open the scroll back up. I gotta write chapter six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay. Now, we think of salvation as simply receiving eternal life. Paul conceives of salvation, first and foremost, as death. The reason you cannot continue to live in sin is because you died to sin. Because Jesus' death was your death. You have died to sin, and when you got baptized, it was symbolizing the fact that you died with Jesus, and you rose again with him to live a new kind of life. So living in sin for Christians is an oxymoron. He says, "Or well, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead from th- by the glory of the Father, Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, who you were before you were saved, was crucified, it died with him, (coughs) that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him, also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, so every single thing I just said about Jesus, He died to sin, and now he lives a new kind of life that's committed and dedicated to God. The same is true of you. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So what I want you to see here (coughs) is something easy to see, is that being delivered from this present evil age means that God has set us free from sin, right? We are not slaves to sin anymore. As Christians, well, as unbelievers, unbelievers, they must sin. They have no choice but to sin. As Christians, he has set us free, and he has given us his spirit so that we can please him. Not perfectly, of course, we we will all fall short, okay? but we can do a lot better than we do. (laughs) Let me know you say that. He set us free. We have to make the choice to not let sin reign in our bodies. You see that? But there's something that's odd that Paul goes on to say. Not only does he say, and this will lead us back into Galatians, he does not just say, that God has set us free from sin. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says that we have been set free from sin for because... Now listen to the reason why we have been set free from sin. Verse 14, because sin will not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under law... But under grace. When I was a teenager growing up, I, 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 would, I, I would read this verse over and over. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand what he means. Like you're not you're not under law, you're under grace. I, what does that have to do with, with me sinning? Kay. And so if you look over in chapter 7, right, of course we, Paul says that. He has set us free from sin, and he set us free from the law. Verse, Chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the law or of the letter. Now, what is Paul saying? <coughs> I'm going to do a quick run through. Paul says that when you get married, you're married. The two shall become one. Paul says that, if you divorce your spouse and marry someone else, you don't just have one spouse. You have two. And you are considered an adulterer because you are bound to that spouse as long as they live. Okay? But if your spouse dies and you remarry, right, you are not considered an adulterer even though you're married to someone else. Now, he says, therefore, and then brings the analogy into um, into, uh, dealing with the law, you have died to the law so that you can be married to Christ. If you did not die to the law, you could not marry Christ because you must stay with your first spouse. That's his point. And So <coughs> Paul is saying that you have died to the law. You are set free from the law. And now you are free to be Christ's bride. The reason that that is necessary is because The law was the point of contention between you and God. Now, this is what we'll we'll have to work through in Galatians. Because the Judaizers are telling Gentiles that if you want to be rightly related to God, you have to follow the law. You have to be circumcised. You got to follow the dietary laws. You got to keep the feast. You have to do all of the things that the law says under the assumption that you can actually do it. But Paul says that if you try to keep the law, you must keep all of the law. And because you can't, in chapter 3, he says, you are going to be cursed. If, if you want to follow rules in order to, Please God, have at it. (laughs) But you got to get it 100 percent, or you fall under the curse of the law. Now God has provided another way. When when Jesus died on the cross, He unites you to Christ by faith, so that Jesus' death counts as your death, and you are dead to the law, so that you're now free. And now, when you break God's law, He doesn't have to punch you in the face. You have been given the forgiveness of sins that doesn't come through the law, it only comes by faith. Does anyone see that? Now, It seems a bit odd that Paul would say that God has set us free from the sin and has set us free from the law. Paul does not have any problems with the law. If we continue reading in Romans chapter 7, for example, Paul says the law is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. Romans chapter 8, he says that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, right, meaning the law is great, you just have issues, right, you, you, you won't keep God's law, and so because you won't keep his law, he has to punish you. So, what God did was he set you free from sin, and he set you free from the law so that he no longer has to punish you for breaking his law. And he has done that through the death of his son, him, his son giving himself for our sin. Now, when we come back to the book of Galatians, we're not going to look at this today. This, we'll see this as we work our way chapter by chapter through the book of Galatians. What we'll see is that Paul consistently points out the antithesis between the law and the gospel. He says the law on one side and the gospel on on another side. Right. Um, Even when we talk about when he talks about Abraham. Right. He, He talks about the law on one side and the promise that God made to Abraham on the other on the other hand. And these two are mutually exclusive. He talks about the law and faith being mutually exclusive. And he talks about the law and the spirit being mutually exclusive. And what I want us to see and keep in mind is the law pertains to this present evil age. The law, even though it is holy, righteous, and good, is a part of this present evil age. Now, people are like, "Mm, I don't believe that. Okay, turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. The law is a part of this present evil age. Last thing I'm going to show you and then I'm done. The law is a part of this present evil age that Jesus needed to deliver us from. Galatians, chapter 3. Go through this briefly, um, and then when we come back to this chapter, I'll uh, go through this really verse by verse. Starting at verse 22, Galatians 3, starting at verse 22. Listen to what Paul says. Well, I'll start at 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Okay, so, so he says before faith came, so in this Old Testament period, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. It protected us. It kept us for the faith that would be revealed. It trained us and prepared us for Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 24, the law was our tutor, right? On this word um, pedagogos uh, was used of usually a house slave who was in charge of the children. They were in charge of the children's education to train them. To take them to school to prepare them to raise them so that they could take over the the father's estate, okay, so the law was our tutor it was our it was it was the person who raised us and trained us and prepared us for adulthood in Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, what does it say? We're no longer under t- a tutor when, when I be A a child who was being raised by a pedagogos, when they became an adult, they no longer needed that pedagogue, right? Thank you. It was great raising me. See you later. He says that we were under the law until Christ. But now that we have Christ, there's no need for the law. You see that? He goes on to say, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as were ba- of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I say the, that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, what is that referring to when we were children? Old Testament time, uh, when we were under the law, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage Under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. All of these ideas are referring back to being under the law. You're no longer a slave. You're not under the law. You're a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who by nat- which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. Well, what is he referring to? He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. You want to go back under the weak and beggarly elements of the world. Well, what's that, Paul? He goes on in verse 10 to talk about the feast of the law. You want to go back to weak and beggarly things. You you want to go back to the law. But Christ has set you free from that. Now, we'll deal with this in, in a lot of more detail moving forward, but I want us to just keep this in mind. Jesus delivered us from the law because the law, is what not only increased our sin, right? Remember Paul said that where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there is no law, God can't hold us accountable to it. But the law was added, Paul said, right? In order to make sin become exceedingly sinful. The purpose of the law is to help us to see how sinful we really are. The law is not used as a way to make us more righteous or to do the right thing. Because our flesh precludes us from doing that. Not only does the law increase sin in our lives, but it is the point of contention between us and God. Being set free from this present evil age, which includes the law, we are right now living the life of the age to come, which is the life of the spirit. And that's what Paul focuses on in chapters five and six. He set you free from the law so you can live according to the spirit. And remember, when he gets down to the end, when he gives the fruit of the spirit, he says, against such, there is no Law. There's no rules to keep when you're walking by the Spirit. Because the Spirit is going to say, don't do that. Oh, okay, I'm not supposed to do that. You got a Bible verse for that? No, but the Spirit told me don't do it. <laughs> okay? Right? Living according to the Spirit, you are free from the law. So, as I close, I want us to to keep these verses in mind. Paul is going to repeatedly come back to these themes, right? He's going to repeatedly come back to the grace of God. He's going to repeatedly come back to the sufficiency of Christ's death. He's going to consistently come back to the insufficiency of the law and our good deeds. And he is going to come repeatedly come back to the freedom that only comes through the Holy Spirit. And as we work our way through uh, this book and we consistently are confronted um, with, with what Paul, uh, his understanding of the gospel, you know, my prayer is, as I've been saying, right, leaving the book of James, that we would stop looking to ourselves, right, in order to please God and to start looking at and resting in the one who gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us to come and to hear your word. Lord, the gospel is so hard to accept because everything in this world depends on us. If we want something in this life, we have to do it ourselves. If we want a promotion, we have to work hard. But it's not the same way in the spiritual realm. We lack the ability to, to do anything pleasing in your sight. And yet, we just keep trying. And we find ourselves, like Paul in Romans chapter 7, feeling frustrated and condemning ourselves and beating ourselves up. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us in those times to continue to come back to the gospel, helping us to understand that you did not save us because of works of righteousness that we have done, but you saved us because of your mercy and because of your grace. You saved us even though we were not deserving, simply because you loved us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that that truth is not only good to get us saved, but it is true and good every single day of our lives. We will continue to sin and fall short of your glory, but there is nothing we can do to make it up to you. But the gospel, the good news, is that there is no need to make it up. Because Jesus' death was sufficient for our sin. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to fall into the opposite trap of antinomianism and thinking that, well, since Jesus paid for it all, then I can do what I want. Paul says we should not continue in sin that grace may abound. But if we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, then we will work out the righteousness that Jesus died to provide for us. Imperfectly, we will fall, we will stumble, we will fail. But we know that we are in such a loving relationship that when we fail, all we have to do is cry out to our Father and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray, Lord, that as we work our way through the book of Galatians, that you would would bring to our minds again, help us to to transform and reshape our understanding of the gospel so that we can love you, the one who gave himself for us. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Amen.